You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Exodus chapters 5 and 6, that will be our main text for today, Exodus chapters 5 and 6. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now and use it to follow along with us this morning and just hang on to that Bible. That's our gift to you. I think there are also a few ESV scripture journals remaining in the back as well. So if you haven't gotten one of those, you're welcome to take one. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? The word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. So listen carefully to these words to get us started. I want to read Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are now three weeks into this study of the second book of the Bible. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which means beginning, God initiated his plan to redeem his creation by selecting a man named Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham. He promised that Abraham would be the father of many, that his descendants would become a great nation, that one day those descendants would live in a great land, and that one day all the nations of the world would experience great blessing through them. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, which means departure, God's people, the Israelites, have indeed become many. They are great in number, but they're broken in spirit because they don't yet live in that great land of promise. In fact, they're trapped in the land of Egypt living under the harsh hand of a Pharaoh who fancies himself a god. The Pharaoh can keep the Israelites in Egypt, but he cannot keep their prayers from rising up to the one true God. They pray. God hears their prayers and remembers his promises. And subsequently, he raises up a man named Moses, who will be the leader of God's people, the rescuer. Now Moses is a flawed man. At the time of God's commissioning, he's a shepherd. 
So there's nothing particularly important or impressive about him. There is nothing about Moses himself that makes him useful. But in God's choosing of him, he will become useful. You see, this is God's typical way of working. This is how he accomplishes his will for the world. He chooses ordinary, flawed individuals for extraordinary tasks. And then he empowers them for what lies ahead. This is what he does with Moses. Last week, we left our bookmarks at the end of chapter 4. Moses has just been summoned by God, summoned into a new and better story. God says, I have come down to deliver my people. Moses, I will send you to the Pharaoh. Today, we pick things up in chapters 5 and 6. Moses has come down from the mountain of God, down from the burning bush, down from the fire. And he returns to Egypt. He does exactly what God tells him to do. And one of the first things Moses encounters, one of the first things he meets is opposition. Intense and extensive opposition. And so the question is, what will Moses do? Will he persevere? You see, it's much easier. It's much easier to follow God when you're on the mountaintop. But what about when the mountaintop experience ends and opposition and temptation enter? What will you do now? It's far easier to follow God when you're the student at summer camp, surrounded by the glow of God's people. But what about when you're back home and you're all alone and you know there in the secrecy of your room that pornography is only a few clicks away what will you do now? It's much easier to follow God when you're the single woman who's just attended the conference. It's all about waiting on God's perfect timing and plan. But what about when you meet that man who's very interested in you, but it would mean that you must lower your standards, biblical standards. What will you do now? It's much easier to follow God when we've just had a powerful night of worship or you've just heard a sermon that you feel like was written and delivered just to you. But what about when the only thing you can hear are the kids fighting, your classroom complaining, your spouse grumbling, your team plotting? What will you do now? That's the question of Exodus 5 and 6. In these chapters, we discover a sequence of events that will be experienced commonly by people who seek to follow God's call. The sequence goes like this. Obedience brings opposition. That's point one. Opposition breeds doubt. Point two. But in the end, doubt, it doesn't reign supreme. It doesn't win the day. In the end, doubt bows to promise. Point three. So first, obedience brings opposition. Chapter five, verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Afterward, after what? Well, 
after Moses has seen God on the mountain, after God has provided Aaron, Moses' older brother, as a partner in the mission, after Moses and Aaron have returned to Egypt, announced God's plan of deliverance to the elders of Israel and their first response is to believe and to worship after all of these good things have happened. You see, Moses is in a very good place right now. He's feeling that spiritual high. You know the feeling? He's on that spiritual high right now. He is ready. He is confident. He's saying, God, I'll I'll go wherever you call me. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Sign me up for the nursery. Bring on the diapers. I'll do it, God. I'm ready. And with that same confidence, he and Aaron march to Pharaoh. And they say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. In your Bible, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters like this, it's that Hebrew word we learned about last week, the covenant name of God. Just four consonants in Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh. On the mountain, God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, there is no one to whom you can compare me. I'm not like anyone else. I won't be defined by anyone else. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Moses does exactly what Yahweh told him to do. He goes to the Pharaoh. He's obedient He takes a stand against evil. He speaks truth to the tyrant. And watch what happens. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now when the Pharaoh asked this question, Who is the Lord? He probably isn't saying, I have no knowledge of this Lord. This past week, Jose asked me about a movie, and I responded, I don't know that one. And what I meant was, up until this very moment, I didn't even know that movie existed. Never heard anything about it, had no knowledge of it whatsoever. That's probably not the sense here in 5.2. Rather, when Pharaoh asked the question, who is the Lord? He is not saying, I don't know anything about this God. He's saying, I have no respect for this God. No reverence, no fear. He's questioning Yahweh's authority. This is Pharaoh saying, who is Yahweh to tell me what I must do? I am the Lord of this land. I will show that I am in control. Pharaoh's plan is to show Moses and Aaron and everyone else how puny their God is. So he thinks. And so he acts. And here's what he does. Verse 6, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now notice here, when the Pharaoh takes action, what he does and why he does it. 
The text makes all three clear. First, the when. That same day, that same day, Pharaoh takes action. With a ferocious swiftness, he wants Moses and Aaron to see that he is in control. He wants everyone to know that he is in control. And he wants the Israelites to see that the suffering, the intense suffering that is about to commence is a direct result of Moses and Aaron's intervention. So he acts swiftly. Now notice the what. What does he do? He says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. He says this to his taskmasters. In the Delta region of Egypt, there was no natural stone. There was a shortage of natural stone. So bricks were essential for construction. But the bricks themselves had to be constructed. This was the daily labor of the Israelite slaves. They would take clay, mix it with straw. The straw acted as a binding agent. And then they would add water, and that substance had to be kneaded by feet. So if you remember, if you're old enough to remember this, or if you've seen the reruns of that episode of I Love Lucy, that very famous episode where she climbs into the big bin and she's squishing the grapes, that's the idea here. This is what the Israelites were doing every single day. And then that substance finally was taken, it was placed into the brick mold, and it was sun-dried. Now, they've been doing this hard work all along, but now the Pharaoh says, the work must continue and the quota will not change, but you've got to find your own materials. I'm not giving you the straw anymore. The binding agent is gone. Go get it yourself. But the quota doesn't change. And if you can't meet the quota, you'll be beaten. So that's what he does. But notice most importantly why he does it. Why does he do this? What the text tells us very clearly in verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they, so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He wants to work the Israelites incessantly so that they have no time, no energy to dream about an escape, to dream about deliverance. He wants to break them, not simply their bodies, but their spirits. He wants all of Israel to sink into despair. Never again will they question his authority, his power. Do you see what's happening here in Exodus 5? Since Moses and Aaron show up, things have only gotten worse. They follow God. They do what God is calling them. And things have only gotten worse. Moses must learn you and I must learn that when we follow God, things often get worse before they get better. When we follow God, things often get worse before they get better. Expect opposition. Now, before moving on to the second point, a brief aside. A word of warning, because I don't want anyone to be deceived by all this talk about how obedience brings opposition. This does not mean that opposition is a guarantee that you are going in the direction God wants you to go. While it is often the case in the Bible that obedience brings opposition, that does not mean that the presence of opposition in your life is invariably a sign that God is pleased with you. And if you think about this story, this very same story, but from a different perspective, you'll see how that's true. 
Think for a moment from the perspective of Pharaoh. Pharaoh probably felt like he was experiencing opposition, right? He probably feels like the Israelites are opposing him. Is that opposition a mark, a badge that God is pleased with him? Of course not. Of course not. So you see, we can't simply say something like this, everything in my life is going wrong, so I must be doing something right. (laughs) It's not that simple. Some people think that way. If there's opposition in your life, maybe it is because you're being obedient. Maybe it is because of your holiness and righteousness. Or maybe it's because of your jackassery. (laughs) Somebody needs to say it. The way you'll know is not by looking at the opposition, but by asking yourself the question, do I have instruction from God? Do I have instruction from God? And if I do, and I'm acting on that, I'm following him, then yes, this is an example of obedience bringing opposition. But you must ask the question, do I have instruction from God? Moses did. He's acting on it, and things only get worse. And they don't stop here. Point two, opposition breeds doubt. Picking up the story in verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Understand, this is now Moses' own people rising up against him. This is not the Egyptians. These are the foremen of the people of Israel. The leaders of those slave gangs that are working, they come to Moses and Aaron and they say, the Lord look on you and judge. They are calling down the divine name, divine judgment on the very men who were called by God to serve them and to lead them. These are Moses' own people rising up against him. This is sabotage, mutiny. Betrayal. Imagine how Moses must have felt in this moment, his own people turning against him. If you are a leader, a leader of any kind, a leader seeking to follow God, you will have moments like this one in the Exodus story. You will have moments of sabotage. In his excellent book on Christian leadership called Canoeing the Mountains, Todd Bolsinger says this, we assume that our followers will have our backs, but that is all a comforting fantasy if you are truly trying to bring change to an organizational system. Whether it's a family, a church, a business, a not-for-profit, or a government, all the best literature makes it clear to lead you must be able to disappoint your own people. Now, that doesn't mean that the goal is to disappoint, but it must mean that you have to be able to disappoint 
disappoint your own people. That's what happens here in the Exodus story. The people of Israel are disappointed with Moses and Aaron. And why are they disappointed? Because Moses and Aaron did exactly what God called them to do. They were faithful and the people call them failures. They're being sabotaged. And they must come to see that God still has a good plan in all this. Moses and Aaron must come to love the very people who are sabotaging them. The very people who are shooting at them. Shooting them in the back. You see, you can't take sabotage personally. You can't. It might seem like people are shooting you in the back, but they're not really. Their sabotage is an effort against not you, but the change you're bringing. The change you're bringing. Moses and Aaron must see this, and they must continue to love and lead the people faithfully, no matter who turns against them. A lesson for us here in Christian leadership is expect sabotage. Expect it. Anticipate it. And that will be a great great, uh, defense against what comes ahead. It's not so true in management. Management sees what is and tries to steward it well. Leadership sees what could be and tries to steer toward it. And that means change. And anytime there's a change initiative, there will be sabotage. This we learn from the Exodus story. Moses wasn't ready for it. He wasn't anticipating this sort of pushback from his own people. And so he sinks into doubt himself. Moses speaks to God. In chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Moses turns to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Back in chapter 5, verse 2, the Pharaoh questions God's authority. Who is the Lord? Here in 5.22, Moses questions Yahweh's authority. In his despair and his doubt, he becomes similar to the tyrant he's called to speak against. Moses doubts God's wisdom, his will, his plan. The last part of what Moses says is an accusation, really, that God is a liar. God, you said to me, I've come down to deliver my people. You said to me, go, Moses, I'm sending you. I'll deliver them through you. And God, you have not delivered your people at all. Liar. You ever felt like Moses? Had similar moments in your life? Feel like you took a stand? Acted courageously? Did the right thing? And things only got worse? Where are you now, God? Where's that good plan of yours now? Had your own fiery words with God, maybe? It's happened to all of us. Might be happening to some of us right now. What you need is a fresh word from God. Something to remind you of who He is, that He's still with you. Something to give you that courage that you need to stay faithful in that current situation. You need to be encouraged. That's what the word encourage means, quite literally, to put the courage back into you. And that's exactly what God does with Moses. Obedience brings opposition. Opposition breeds doubt, but doubt doesn't win the day. 
Doubt does not reign supreme. In the end, doubt bows to promise. Chapter 6, now we hear from the Lord. We've heard from Pharaoh, we've heard from the Israelites, and we've heard from Moses. Now God speaks. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. God says to Moses, things are exactly as they should be. We get this picture here of God arranging the dominoes all along, placing all the elements just as he wants them so that he can say, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. In ways that mere mortals can't possibly understand, God has been arranging all of this, bringing everything to this climactic moment. Now he will act. Now he will show through Pharaoh his power. And he says to Moses, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the ever-present self-sufficient God. But of course, God has already told this, already told Moses this on the mountain. He revealed his covenant name, I am the Lord. He says it again here, why, what's the point? The point is, when you and I are in despair, discouraged, when we are sinking in our doubt, we don't need a new word. I said before that we need a fresh word from the Lord. Really, the better way to say it, and what's more consistent with Exodus 6, is that we need an old word newly given. God doesn't encourage Moses by giving him some new revelation, but by reminding him of the promises that he's forgotten. Promises given in the past that were designed to direct Moses to the God-intended future, but promises that have now been buried in the confusion of the present. They must be excavated, found again, focused upon, and that's how Moses will be encouraged. So in the next several verses of chapter six, God gives three promises to Moses. Each one is bolstered by I am Yahweh. Here's the promise, here's who I am. I am Yahweh, the ever-present God. I am with you now, I will be with you no matter what. These are gospel promises. They'll encourage us, wherever you are, whatever you're going through in life, Let's look at them one at a time in closing. The first is the promise of redemption. God says in Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God will redeem Israel. Believer, God has redeemed you. To be redeemed is to be liberated, set free. You have been set free from the penalty, from the power of sin. Just as Israel once suffered under the tyranny of the Pharaoh, we once suffered under the tyranny of sin. We've been set free because of Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and our belief in him. We've been liberated. Freedom. Freedom, the promise of redemption. The second one is the promise of adoption. 
Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God will take Israel as his own people. Believer, God has claimed you as his own, and that will never change. What good news that is. It will never change because of what Jesus has done. You can call God Father. To be adopted is to be loved unconditionally. And if you can call God Father, then that means you have an inheritance. Which brings us to the last promise, the promise of possession. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. God says to Israel, I will bring you into the land. That great land promised long ago, it will become your possession. In Exodus and in other places of the Old Testament, this land of promise is sometimes referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I remember as a kid hearing that description and being a little bit confused by it. In fact, I remember thinking, that sounds like a sticky place. (laughs) It sounds like a very sticky place. I guess even as a child, I valued cleanliness and orderliness because that's the first thing that came to my mind. Sounds like a very sticky place. Like something from a Willy Wonka movie, right? Just smellier because wouldn't all this flowing milk go bad in the sun? Obviously, I totally missed the point as a child. Milk and honey are representative. God doesn't say, I will give you a land of water and bread, but milk and honey and plenty of it, fat and sugar, fullness and sweetness, extravagant blessings, abundant life. This God said to Israel, and this Jesus says to us, I have come that all who believe in me may have life abundantly, extravagant blessings. See, when you follow God, when you go where he's calling you, expect opposition. Expect opposition for a season. But seasons change. In your season of drought, in your season of doubt, find those promises. Excavate them. They're buried somewhere beneath the confusion of the present. Dig them up. Focus on them again. And when you do, your doubt will not reign supreme. Your doubt will bow to the promises. That's what we see happen in Moses' life. We'll stop here for now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many encouragements in this Exodus story. For those of us that are struggling with doubt, we're going through hard times. We have taken stands. We've acted courageously. And things have only gotten worse. So at times we've questioned We've questioned your wisdom, God. We've questioned your plan. 
We've had some fiery words with you. Forgive us. On the one hand, it's good for us to be honest with you. Heck, you know our thoughts. We might as well tell you what we're thinking. But on the other hand, we know that we shouldn't doubt. You are all-powerful, all-wise. We believe that. Even in the moments when we can't see how you're working, we know you must be. So encourage us, I pray. Put the courage back in. Help us to remain faithful, no matter who might turn against us, no matter what opposition comes our way. Faithful to the task that you've called us to. Loving our families, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies well. Show us, God. Show us the next steps we need to take. And give us the courage to take them. Not courage in ourselves. Not confidence in ourselves. In you. I am Yahweh. In your name we pray. Amen.